Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Friday, September 18, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. And this evening, we're talking with Jen Perlman, who recently ran in the Democratic primary for the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Florida's 23rd Congressional District. Though she ran against a popular incumbent, Jen managed to secure nearly 28% of the vote, coming in at 20,721 votes in her favor. The incumbent was Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is one of the more popular and powerful members of the Democratic caucus within the House. Jen Perlman is from the North Miami area. She attended college at the University of Colorado, where she earned a bachelor's degree in 1992. She then went on to Northwestern University, where she received a master's degree in 1994, and then on to St. Mary's University, where she received a jurisprudence degree in 2000. Jen is a member of the bar in both Texas and Florida. She has worked with the Juvenile Justice Committee, the League of Women Voters in Broward County, the Democratic Women's Club of West Broward, the Democratic Progressive Caucus of Florida, the Broward County Bar Association, the Sunrise Movement of South Florida, and the Mobile School Pantry. The Alliance Party After Dark would like to emphasize that the views Jen Perlman expresses are hers based on her experiences and not that of any entity or organization with which she may be affiliated. Jen Perlman, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me on this show. Well, you know, to set the tone for this evening, I'd, I'd like to start out by, first of all, congratulating you for a strong showing when running against one of the more well-known and powerful Democratic incumbents in the House of Representatives. Uh, you took on an ambitious task, and as a result, uh, many of the issues you brought forward during your campaign, I hope anyways, got uh, got some good attention. Yeah, you know, we, we are actually really happy with our results. Um, we went into this, we're, we're pretty knowledgeable. We know the district. I actually grew up down here, my campaign manager, and I went into this uh, essentially as a partnership. This wasn't a situation wherein I decided I want to run for Congress and then found people to help me do that. This was really um, a joint effort of us really brainstorming on the best way to make things change and help people in this district. This was always about serving this district. Mm -hmm. Um, the, our current representative does not do that. And, um, that's something that I've been as a constituent dealing with for 16 years. So we started strategizing and, uh, that's where this came from. And, and so we, we always knew that, um, we were likely going to lose, like that was not, we were never delusional. Mm -hmm. But we got we we got the same amount of votes as the challenger in 16 got with 10 percent of the money. We didn't have an endorsement from Bernie Sanders like he did. And we were in the middle of a pandemic and we were able to get the same amount of votes. So I we were very encouraged. Yeah, you did very well. So I would like to dive into some of the ideas that you brought forth in your campaign. But uh before that, I, I'm, I'm dying to know what it's really like to be a candidate for such a powerful office, because if I, if I may preface this a bit, uh, in one of our earlier podcasts, we spoke with two individuals in South Carolina, Sarah Work and Donna McGreevy, who ran for state office. And the theme of, the, of that show was, what's it like to be a candidate? Uh, Sarah, by the way, is actually running again this year. Anyways, um, what they told what they told us during that podcast is that running for office 
is a lot of hard work, more work than they than either one of them originally anticipated. And it involves countless meet and greets, public speeches, and processing an overwhelming amount of information from an endless supply of potential constituents. Um, it also involves you know business management skills where you have to manage your staff and all the money and everything. Uh, it's not easy, and I'm sure I missed a lot of things. So could you kind of give us uh, your personal story of your, of your experiences and, and, and what you learned about the campaigning itself? I always like to start out by saying it was a privilege to lend my privilege because that's really what this was about. This, Like I said, this was never about me wanting to be a congressperson. This was about being a voice for people that don't have a voice and being in a position both um, with my work experience and my academic experience and quite honestly, my demographic of being a middle-aged Jewish woman in this district. There were a lot of variables that strategically would lend itself to being able to move forward with these policy ideas. And so that's where this really came from, but it was extraordinary. And they, you know, what those women were saying is right. I've told people that running for, and for me, I've only run for Congress. So running for Congress, it's not even that it's a full-time job. It's your life. Mm -hmm. It is your life. Like it is 24 seven, the entire duration that you're doing that. And so it's, it's a lot of work but it's psychologically, mentally, extremely exhausting. And it takes a certain, it definitely takes a certain type of person who's able to really do that. And so I feel like that's something that it kind of came natural to me. Mm-hmm. I see it as definitely um, something I'm getting better at, but it, it's a privilege to lend my privilege, you know, because ultimately the people that I want representing us are the people that make up the majority of us. But we let's face it, those people can't get elected. They can't do yeah. it. They can't afford to. They can't get the backing. They can't get the name recognition. And you know, this is a problem of corporate and private influence in our elections. Yeah. But so if someone like me can do it and get through and get through and start to change things for people who can't, that's that's a privilege. No. Yeah. Wow, that's a good answer. You know, but, but how about your family? I mean, you have a husband and children, uh, and and you know, you must have been just crazy busy with the campaign. I mean, how did how did they handle your candidacy? I have always been um, pretty busy and active. Uh, for the first, I don't know how many years, I worked full time when my oldest, from when he was six weeks old, um, until. I want to say he was like six. I worked full time, um, mostly just out of necessity at the time. But um, so they're used to me having like my own life. And mm-hmm. my husband is a physician and he works really hard as well. And there's lots of nights when he's on call and he's on home. So my kids have grown up knowing that um, we're in a position where we can help other people. And we do that. Uh, how also my kids are a little bit older now too. Mm-hmm. So my, I have a 14 year old and an almost 20 year old. Okay. So they were at an age where it made it a lot more realistic for me to be able to do that. I didn't have like a little child that I was having to do caregiving to. Yeah. I, I was just, uh, I was thinking about this last night, uh, you know, what, what, what would I do or how would I feel if my own mother were running for Congress? And I, I would just be totally all over it. Uh, I mean, every kid's different, right? But I think I would have just been thrilled with it myself. So I think that would have could have been a very you know positive experience for the entire family. 
I would think. Yeah, it was interesting. And for the most part, for the most part, they kind of just stayed out of it. My husband would help when I would ask for help. Like he would always like order food for this or bring somebody to this meeting or what. I mean, like he would do whatever I asked, but like I said, he has his whole own job in practice. So it's not like he could just give that up. But, um, sometimes my little one would want to come to stuff. He liked canvassing. Um, and I think a lot of that for him was hanging out with all the, to me, their kids, but to him, their older kids. Cause they're all like, I had a lot of volunteers ages 16 to 24. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's the core of my group. And so my 14 year old loved hanging out with them. So I think that was, that was part of it for him. Oh. And my older one really, for the most part, stayed out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's good. So, uh, getting into the issues now, um, and just looking at it from a uh, thirty thousand foot view, um, what do you suppose will be your legacy in running in this particular primary against uh, such a powerful incumbent? I mean, do you think you were able to get Debbie Wasserman Schultz to uh, address your issues and force her to address your issues? And if so, uh, do you think it'll make a difference? No, Debbie Wasserman Schultz will never address our issues because she's paid to not address our issues. Mm-hmm. And so what we are doing here is slowly chipping away at the political machine and very specifically here in Broward County. Mm-hmm. And there, that's a very, there's multi facets to this approach. The running was part of it. Uh, we are changing the entire, our organization. And now we're starting something called Generational Change, which will be our podcast. And my Gen Corps, which has always been my volunteers, this was always a service campaign from day one, long before COVID. My volunteers all did community service. Um, we did them with Gen 2020 shirts on, but we spent our time, we spent as much time serving as we did canvassing. And, and that was always the hallmark of this was that political representation is supposed to be a term of service. It is right. not a career. And so we, my goal has always been to demonstrate that. And I do believe we've done that and we're still doing it. These kids want to keep going. I just, they just, um, we had our first meeting post-election. I had 19 local volunteers on ready to be out volunteering. Wow. I've got, wow. I've got two of them that are heading up a tutoring section to help some of these parents who can't really help their kids with the online school. I got kids working on community gardens, you know? And so I hope that that message gets through more than anything. And especially to these younger kids, because they need to create this world that they want. And people like Debbie Wasserman Schultz and other corporate, you know, representatives, but they're, they're just impeding progress. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's all they're doing. They're just sitting there and impeding progress so that their corporate donors can milk as much out of the system as they can. Um, and so really, it's about raising awareness. And also in two years, that's two more years of registered young voters. And those are all our voters. Yeah. None of those people are graduating from high school and saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to go support Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She calls pot the gateway drug. Nobody's nobody's doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the future is theirs and they kind of recognize that I'm capable of having one foot in that sort of adult world on their behalf, you know? And yeah. I think that's a big part of their, the momentum. Well, that'll, that'll definitely be part of the legacy then of, of, of this story. So yeah, one reason why I asked that question is um, I was, we were privileged actually to talk with Ralph Nader earlier this year. And the first thing out of his, uh, first thing he started talking about when we started talking was that he pointed out that 
political third parties have always had a positive lasting effect on national on the national political discussion. You know, like he cited like abolition of slavery, women's right to vote, trade unions, Medicare, Social Security, etc. And so I was thinking about that, you know, when I came up with that question for you regarding what your legacy was going to be, because, you know, maybe um, maybe Debbie Wasserman Schultz is not directly addressing your issues, but the fact that you had so many votes and and put a significant dent in the uh, in, in the primary, the yeah, issues you brought scared. up. They're yeah. definitely running a little scared, the establishment here. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, she did have to resort to cheating. She did all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, and they are definitely crumbling. Their numbers are getting smaller. And to be honest, they're a lot of them are dying off. Mm-hmm. This is very generational. And 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 I, I do see it nationwide, but very specifically in my district, it is very generational. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a matter of time. All right. Well, that uh, it kind of dovetails into another issue or another uh, subject I was going to bring up here. Um, we, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the book called The Politics Industry from Gell and Porter. Um, no. Oh, you are. Oh, okay. I, but I'm interested in that. Definitely yeah. recommend you read it because we actually had Catherine Gell on the podcast, uh, Catherine Gale on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and she co-wrote this book with Michael Porter called The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. And um, so I would highly recommend everybody read this book. But after I read the book, I got to tell you, I've been looking at political parties through a different lens. Um, And not only the Democrats and Republicans, but, you know, also the lesser known parties like the Green Party or the Libertarians and I mean, even the Alliance Party. And what I'm beginning to see is that these parties act a lot like private companies unto themselves, you know, complete with interdepartmental rivalries and all of its inherent ugliness. So your opponent in this recent primary, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, no doubt figured out a long time ago how to navigate through the system, you know, and I'm just, you know, figuring it out now. I'm just kind of slow and I'm catching up. Uh, But it seems like, you know, the insiders such as Wasserman Schultz have, have this understanding about how the business of politics works while the rest of us are kind of standing on the outside looking in. And, so I'm getting at, I guess what I'm getting at is that the the current political structure in this country consists of people, and in your words too, who run this country who are not necessarily serving the country. They run it, but they don't serve it. And this is one of the points that gets driven home in that book. Um, our political system has devolved into this uh, current state over many years. And I believe, you know, if you look in the history of of how this decay occurred, you'll see fundamental issues going all the way back to the original Constitutional Convention. And long-winded question, I know, but I'm coming to a point here. So here you are, you know, a community activist. uh, You walk the talk, and you put it on the line to help people. And and yet you, uh, like Bernie Sanders, have a difficult time finding the right doors to get in. And, you know, I don't mean to sound negative or anything, but, you know, since you actually got close enough to knock on the castle door, um, can you give us your take on why it's so difficult to get our political system to actually work for the people, you know, in terms of like economic disparity or large numbers of people without health care, racial tensions, the gender gap, uh, the list of social ills goes on and on. So, you know, what's your take on on, uh, why it's so difficult to get our system to actually work for the people? 
because we've allowed ourselves to become a complete oligarchy and a corporatocracy. And we have, it, it's happened over the past 40 to 50 years that we have become completely corporatized to the point where corporations are above the government in terms of their power. They have infiltrated all three branches mm -hmm. of our federal government, and they completely own the fourth estate that's mainstream media in this country. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we are dealing with sort of a corporatocracy from every single direction and, and they bought both parties. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. They own both parties and, and there, there is no longer a labor party in this country. There is no labor party. There are two corporate parties. And the problem with that, and this is, it's always interesting to me when people, I've been called everything like communist, socialist, I get called all these things. And I'm neither of those. I'm actually a social Democrat and I am fine with capitalism. But people don't understand that if we don't have consumers and we don't have representation of labor, you will cease to have a functioning capitalist society because there will be no consumers. And right now there's no labor party and everything is tilting so far to the right that we don't, it's just been so gradual that we don't even realize how to the right we are, mm -hmm. because you could go up to the most conservative voter in the UK and they think healthcare is a right. And the thought of people not having healthcare isn't even partisan or political. No. no. So, so what we've done and the corporations have done through our media and through ownership of all of the you know parts of government is they've shifted it so far to the right that people that are just seeking basic centrist policies in other places we're so radical left mm -hmm. and and people have sort of been going along with it because it's happened gradually and that's what we're fighting against it's 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 so much of it and um down here it is the establishment is very old school we are um, a very blue district, very gerrymandered, but it's a very um, establishment blue. It's not a Bernie blue. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're working on and building up a coalition that's also, by the way, nonpartisan. I'm not being stuck with that. You know, I, it, yes, I have to run as a Democrat here. It ha that's, we have closed primaries. There's no other way to do it. Right. And we're too gerrymandered blue. You, if running against her in the general is a complete waste of time. It's just, there's, it's never going to happen. So strategically, you have to do it that way here. But I have no love for that party because that party is not loving the people. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm about representing what's in the best interest of the people in this district. Okay. And the majority of those people are working people. And right now the Democrats are not properly representing working people. So we're kind of trying to go around them. No, I, there's, it's just strategy and just chipping away and, you know, doing the best we can. I feel somewhat inspired about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially given Cori Bush, you know, we did about the same as she did in 18. Um, and so, you know, she was able to pull it off the second time. But, you know, even if you don't, you keep getting further and further and further and pushing it, the ball because that's what we're trying to do. I just want there to be a labor party. Yeah. Just uh, just for reference to everybody, uh, your reference to Cori Bush is you're referencing the uh, first district of Missouri. Uh, and she recently won the primary against Lacey Clay, who has been part of the establishment for a very long time in the St. Louis area. So, um it was uh, it was a good key win for her. 
Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to lay something on you. This is, this is basically the, the, the referring back to the book, the politics industry. I recommend you read it because it, it they, this is the part they got me about that book. Um, both Cal and, uh, both, uh, Gail and Porter said that the system is working. It's working exactly as it's designed. Right? Absolutely. It's, it's not yeah. broken. It's fixed. Right. So, yeah. Um, so this is so. What she has proposed, or she and Michael Porter have proposed, is change the system and change the outcome, right? And anybody like myself, I have an engineering degree. I know that you want to you know, something's broken, you've got to change it somehow in order to get it fixed. You can't just keep doing the same thing again, right? So, um, anyway, she had some pretty interesting. She and Michael Porter had some very interesting things to say about how to uh, how to change the system to make it work better for us. Yeah, I mean, that's ultimately what it is. And and if people really think about it, it's very scary that two private clubs Mm -hmm. control the election mechanism in this country. Yeah. Like think about, and, and those private clubs have corporate sponsors. So the very mechanism of electoral politics in this country, which is the basis of everything we are supposed to be built on, has been corporatized mm-hmm. and profitized, right? So, I mean, this is what should be like. That's scary. Yeah. Well, they're they're more than private clubs. They're actually industries, right? Multi-billion-dollar yeah. companies, really, that are controlling us. Dem- they're known yeah. as Democrats and Republicans. So, uh, yeah, they, and and like any companies that want to maximize profits and and keep their business going, they're going to make deals with other corporations to keep themselves in business. So, um, yeah, they're, they're both guilty of it. So it, so this, it just brings me to a, a fairly difficult question that I'm going to, to lay on you um, because, um, and I think I'm beginning to see what answer you're going to provide, but, but bear with me. Um, I recently attended a virtual town hall from uh, put on by Jill Shoup, and she's actually the uh, uh, Democratic uh, um, candidate contender for Missouri's second U.S. congressional district, and she's running against the incumbent, Ann Wagner. Uh, by the way, I'm trying to get them both in the podcast, but uh, they're not even hearing me at this point. But uh, Jill is is running a campaign similar to what you were doing in that she's not depending on donations from big corporations or corporate PACs. So I said, okay, that's fine. So I posed a question. I typed it out on the comments section, and I said, uh, the question read something like this. How will you raise money for your next campaign? And I capitalized the word next because I, I was letting her know that I was actually loading up the question in a way to assume that she's going to win this election, whether or not that happens, we still have to see. But let's assume she wins this election. Here's my problem. Um, when new members of Congress start out in Washington, D.C., they're challenged with very tight schedules. Um, members of Congress, uh, even freshmen, are expected to spend time dialing for dollars, and a lot of time, right? Because political parties, as we said, are multi-billion dollar corporations, Democrats, Republicans, multi-billion dollar corporations. And they need a lot of money, so somebody's got to do the dialing for the dollars. So they keep their congresspeople dialing for dollars, um, and they keep your schedules tight so you don't have time to perform due diligence on all the bills that you're supposed to review. Um, So you have to depend on your underpaid staff to do the legwork and sadly depend also on lobbyists. Uh, it's a trap in a sense. I mean, you get sucked into the vortex. It's like Hotel California. You can check out, but you can't ever leave. So... 
I, I'm going to so I, I'm going to pose that question to you. Um, what would be your plan? Let's say you run again, or let's say you made it into Congress. What would be your plan to avoid this trap? How would you say no to the party leadership when they ask um, you to start dialing I, I got to tell you, the entire premise of the entire that scenario starts out with dialing for dollars. Mm-hmm. When you're elected to Congress based on regular people, you don't dial for dollars. AOC doesn't dial for dollars. Mm-hmm. Ilhan Omar does not dial for dollars. The people that are elected, Cory Bush does not have to dial for dollars. So uh, you don't owe that to them. Mm-hmm. They can't make you do that. And the reality is anybody as a progressive, non-corporatist that is going into Congress cannot go there thinking that people are going to want to work with you and be your friend and be on your side. They don't. Mm-hmm. They're not going to, they don't. There are two sides to this. There's corporate and non-corporate. That's it. And, you know, when you go there, you have to expect you're not going to be liked. You're not going to be popular. You are going to be smeared. You are going to be, they are going to do everything they can mm-hmm. to, to work against what you're trying to do. And you have to accept accept that. But here's the thing. If you're representing your constituents and you are someone like Bernie Sanders, he has the highest approval rating in Congress. It's like 80 something percent. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. And so when you're that person and your people love you, you don't need to dial for dollars because you're going to get elected because your people love you. Well, and so I, I think when you when you talk about coming at it from the outside, that is exactly what this is. It's shifting the entire paradigm. If my constituents like me because they see me in the community and they know that I'm out there and they know that I'm fighting for them and I am present and I am really serving, then what do I need to raise a whole lot of money to do? Why yeah. am I having to raise money? I'm going to win because I'm just doing a good job. Right. So, so I think, you know, it's sort of like a chicken and an egg thing. I know that where we are is stuck right now in a very corporate political climate, but the more of us that can get in, the more Corey Bushes and Jamal Bowmans and AOCs, that's more and more votes for the non-corporatist side of things. And that's what we're doing is just building up numbers. Yeah. Just got to keep building up numbers. Well, and, and I actually talked to Jim Rex about this. He's our uh, he's the uh, national chairman for the Alliance Party. And I talked to him about this particular topic. It must have been a year ago. And I, I brought that same thing up to him. And this is what he told me. He says, what will happen? He says, in your next election, when you try to raise money, you know, for, uh, grassroots, you know, basically appealing to your to your uh, constituents to contribute and um you know, depending on the grassroots that, that you are, um, that the party will take their money and put it against you in the primary, right? They of will course. they will uh, outraise you and oh, yeah. they will your own party will smear you. And now you're fighting not only your own party, but the other party as well. So how do you survive in in that situation? For example, you say AOC, AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she does not uh, dial for dollars. So what guarantee do we have that she's going to stay in that position other than the fact that she's extremely popular? Uh, That's that's exactly right, because they feel that they're being properly represented. Um, And that's that is really the point of this. Now, my district is very unique in a lot of ways, so I can only speak as to how how my thought process is and strategy is here. 
Um, yes, our party is very establishment. They are definitely in with Debbie, but they like me. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality. Not not as a whole, not as a party, but like I know the heads of the clubs. I've gone to their meetings. I'm members of the clubs. So they know me and they know that I'm decent and they know that like when you know them, it's hard for them to kind of come after you. I'm not someone that's an outsider, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like, and they've they've played games and they've done stuff, but but for the most part, they just... They don't. They're probably giving money to Debbie. I don't. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, they definitely made it so that we were ghosted. We didn't have any. They, mo- nobody in this district even acknowledged our race was happening. Not really. It never. Nobody did. They didn't even have us on a panel like they had every other um, seat that was that was open. Every or people were had panels. We didn't have that. So we got ghosted. Hmm. But I am also running against somebody who is very universally disliked. Um, both on the Republican side and around the country, quite honestly. I mean, and so for us, our fundraising efforts are much more national than most candidates would have that opportunity. There are a lot of people that have a problem with my incumbent for for a myriad of reasons that go back to her handling the DNC. Yeah, well, that was uh, goes back to 2016 and the way she handled uh, Bernie Sanders. And all Bernie, let me just tell you, like the, the Bernie people, hate her. Mm-hmm. They hate her. They know who she is. I don't care if you're a Bernie supporter in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota, you know who that is and you hate her. I've gotten to, I've actually, I kept tracks. I sent out thank you notes to donors, but until it got too crazy and too many, but I've gotten donations from every single state in the country, Right. every yeah. single state in this country. I got small dollar donations. We had o- over 7,000 people donated to this campaign. Hmm. And most people can't get that because they're not running against a common nemesis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I have to admit, I, 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 some time ago, we interviewed on the podcast Brad Svensson. I don't know if you remember Brad. He's actually the one who recommended that I, that I get a hold of you. Okay. And uh, he, he said, yeah, you should interview Jen Perlman. I said, who's Jen Perlman? And he said, well, uh, she plans on running against uh, um, um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And I said, oh, I know who Debbie Wasserman Schultz is. Exactly. So that's a brave soul to go up against her. But uh, cool. I'd like to, you know, so I was keeping you on my radar all this time, kind of watching how things were going for you. Um, but yeah, that, but you know, not everybody has that privilege though, right? I mean, you know, first of all, Bernie is really not technically a Democrat, I guess, right? I mean, he's, he's, he caucuses he's with Democrats. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. But, uh, no, but not- you don't have that privilege, and that's the, that's the problem, which is why we saw an opportunity based on all of the elements coming together strategically for us to be able to do this here. Because you're right. You have to have uh, an incumbent that's more universally known and disliked in order to raise the kind of money to even come close to being able to pull it off, right? I mean, you're still going to be outraised 10 to 1, but you'll at least have something. I mean, we raised a little over four hundred thousand um, dollars, hmm. which sounds like a lot, except for she was at one point two million. So you know, but I mean, yeah. And so there is a perfect storm of things that has to occur to be able to out, basically unseat the corporates. Right. It, it requires a perfect storm, and uh, so we're in a position where I think that she's been disliked enough that she's sort of riper to pluck out. Yeah. 
Well, that that one point two million came from dialing for dollars, right? That's that's what. Well, the, all the corporate, does. obviously. I mean, she's she's takes money, and she doesn't just take corporate money. She takes some pretty nefarious corporate money. I mean, she takes money from the military industrial complex, the fossil fuel industry, big sugar, uh, big pharma, um, Florida Power and Light. Basically, she takes money. Oh, the for-profit prison industry. That's a whole other story. Um, she takes money basically from every single industry that I think is the cause of a lot of the problems in this country. Mm -hmm. um, very specifically, and you know, she'll brag about you know her stance on on guns and gun you know and reforming and how she doesn't take NRA money. But you know what? When you take all that other corporate money, you are condoning a system that allows corporate money. So right. then, yes, yeah, some people are going to take the NRA money. Some people aren't. But you're, you're facilitating that system. Right. And it's all part of it. You know, either you, you think that people should be represented or corporations should be represented. There's no there's nothing in the middle anymore. Yeah. Well, um, some of the uh, basic system systemic problems I believe we have uh, get right down to um, the our, our method of plurality voting right there's it, it's always the person who gets the most votes win so you can have 10 people running for a race if one person makes uh, if they all make 10 percent but one guy makes 10 percent plus one vote uh, he or she wins right so um, the, the, this is one of the systemic problems I think we have in this country is right gets right down to the voting mechanism. What do you think about ranked choice voting? Because that's that's uh, it's starting to get pretty popular out there. The state of Maine, for example, has uh, has implemented it. Uh, a lot of cities, I believe, New York. Yeah, and... I am I am a big supporter of ranked choice voting. I think it's probably even on my policy page somewhere. But um, yeah, I which I also just want to make sure people understand the difference between ranked choice voting and what is called an open primary or a jungle primary, they are very different things. Like California mm -hmm. has a jungle primary. It is not the same as ranked choice voting. Um, right. But actual ranked choice voting is excellent. Yeah. That's, but the two parties are never going to really just roll over and allow that, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, well, they can't even, they're sitting there pulling every string they can right now to get the greens off of every ballot they can get them off of. That's how desperate they are. Oh, yeah. And we had uh, Teresa Amato on the on a podcast some time ago. She was actually the campaign manager for Ralph Nader in 2000 and 2004, and she talks a lot about uh, the 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 legislation or the um, the the uh, court cases that have to take that have taken place just to get ballot access. I mean, it's it's just uh, it's a real um, it's a real nightmare out there. But, it is, but you it's, it's a nightmare. And I, I, interestingly, I voted for Ralph Nader in 2000 and proud to have done so. However, I will preface that with, I was living in Texas at the time. Mm -hmm. So that was just a completely red state. Like so, there, it yeah. didn't matter who I voted for. So you weren't part of that, uh, that, uh, Florida thing fiasco in 2000. No, where, in 2000, yeah. I was living in San Antonio. Um, and I, so I was in Texas. I actually traded my vote with somebody in Oregon, which I think was a swing state. And they voted for Gore and I voted for Nader um, because I've always been supportive of the ideas of trying to get more parties. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe if we had actually two parties that were actual two separate parties, maybe that would be better. But we don't. We have right. one party. We have a corporate party, and it's got two little colors, and there's this contrived, controlled opposition. Right. Yeah. 
And, and you know, it, it comes with lots of things like manufactured issues. I, I think, you know, flag burning is one of the big ones oh. that's starting to resurface again. It was it was out there oh. years ago. Now it's coming back again. This is how they don't have to deal with anything of substance. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what I was getting at, too. And the other question there is like, you know, some of the main problems are not being addressed. Right. We're 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 suffering in this yes. country and these problems are just simply not being addressed. But I want to get back to rank rank choice voting a little bit. Uh, you talked about open primaries. Yeah. The, the, the thing about rank choice voting is that it doesn't make any sense if there's just two people running. Right. It's like, who's your first choice? Who's your second? Duh. You know, but um, it, so it it it. It is built on the assumption that you're going to have multiple people. And, and there is this idea now, insofar as primaries go, where you have what's called final five primaries, where um, I'm not sure is that the same as a jungle primary, but but anybody can run, basically. And um, you can have multiple people from the same party running against multiple other people from the, from the same party. And so it all just becomes everybody is part of the same primary. There's no Democratic primary. Yeah, no that's pr- that's what California has. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, if you combine it with ranked choice voting, then um, I think you get better representation. You get uh, a better opportunity to get third parties in there that can that can you know push some of these some of these ideas that actually solve problems and not just keep things uh, hobbling along the way that they are. Well, if you look at the majority of people in this country um, in terms of voter participation, it's non-existent. You go look in 2016 and the Democrats will sit there and yell at all the Jill Stein voters like they were the problem. And yet the majority of people don't vote. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. like most people don't vote. They don't vote because they don't feel inspired to vote because they don't think anything is going to change for them. And a lot of the reason that they don't that people who might support a third party a lot of those people are scared to do that because they're worried it wastes their vote or then it's right. the le- they go with the lesser of two evils. And if, the, if you had ranked choice voting, everybody would feel comfortable voting third party and would not be able to be sort of fear mongered into falling in line. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think doing that for, better. for primaries might've helped too. I mean, you have, uh, you had, um, uh, Donald Trump uh, rising to the top of the primary in the Republican primaries. I, I sometimes, you know, I go back and everybody's trying to analyze this thing after the fact, right? But I sometimes go back and and look at what was really going on in that Republican uh, primary uh, where you had, well, I don't know how many people were in there at first, maybe 12 or 16 or whatever. And, and, and Trump was just one of many, but, you know, because you can only vote for one, right? So, uh, it didn't matter if you made less than 50% of the vote. So you get your, your solid 30%, which he basically has, and it's not going to go anywhere. Um, that was enough to pull him through. And yet we yeah. have, you know, a lot of these Republicans were just, were just gobsmacked over this whole thing. Like, how could this happen? Well, it happened because of mathematics, basically. And, you know, yeah. if, you and want- if they had used ranked choice voting, that probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, that's that's my theory, anyways. I mean, obviously, we can't go back in time and try this thing out, but I I, I tend to think that that would yeah. be true. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. The um um. Okay. So we covered primaries. We covered uh, ranked choice voting. Uh, any other ideas you have regarding you know, how to fix the system and how to how to move forward? Well, one of the things that we have, um, at least in Florida and many other states, I want to say I want to say that two thirds of the states use the, these machines by a company called ES&S. 
And these are the machines that count the ballots. So in Florida, we have paper ballots. You fill them out like, you know, the Scantrons from school, and then they run them through this counting machine. Mm -hmm. and, and the problem is, is that this machine is proprietary software. So people are not allowed to inspect it. And then the company ES&S, they own the data too. <clears throat> wow. We have no access to our own data. And by the way, when there's a recount, all they do is run it through the machine again. Right. They're going to get the same and answer. And these yeah. machines, um, you, you know, you, they, they're just not trusted. That's not trustworthy to me. Yeah. It's just inherently not trustworthy for there to be a proprietary software that is counting our ballots that we have no way to oversee that process. Um, that's inherently, I mean, we don't even qualify as having fair elections by the Carter Institute. Um, you know, we, we don't, and we need hand counted paper ballots. We need hand counted paper ballots yeah. and it's, it's really not complicated. Some places have figured this out, but it's, you know, you mm. employ the people, you train the people, they count the ballots. This is not, and it gives jobs, you know, like it, it's not, this is not rocket science, yeah. but that's, that's one of the big issues is not just the pre-voting, but the actual election process. That's, uh, you know, because I'm going to, I'm going to approach this from an engineering perspective. There is this thing called the IETF, the, in, the Internet Engineering Task Force. Uh, they're responsible for creating all the protocols that run over the Internet these days. And um, they run completely on open source software. Everybody can inspect it and look at it. Uh, even encryption-based software is open. You can look at it. You can, in fact, the idea there is that the more eyes you have on it, the better it is, right? So it really surprises me that ESNS would would close their software and also close up the data. Well, uh, it's a foregone conclusion then that you know you run the same you run the same data through the system. You're going to get the same the same answer. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And and the problem is there there have been people down here that are election integrity activists that have been speaking out against this. Um, but this is a state issue. So for us, that takes, you know, in Tallahassee, we have a very, very red uh, legislature mm -hmm. and they contract with ES&S. And so it isn't even a county by county basis. I can't go to my county SOE and say, you know, we don't want to use these machines. They don't have a say so. It comes from the state. Wow. And most of these states have contracts with this company. I bet you if you followed the money trail from ES&S, it's got its tentacles everywhere in our government. Yeah, um, that's something worth looking into. But that's hmm. that's what this is. But they they don't let people inspect the data, hmm. and we've had people down here fighting against that, saying, "Wait a minute, the data belongs to the county, right? Like the data belongs to the you know the the person the that is contracting yeah. with ESNS or you know whatever." But they are ne no one's ever able to see anything. Wow, wow! Talk about backroom politics and and non-transparency and such. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Huh. And that's like two thirds of our states are using this this company. Hmm. Wow, that's not good. That's kind of scary. Now you've scared me. See that? You've I'm got sorry. me scared. <laughs> so, but it's, um, you know, good. People need to know this. We need to be, like people need to be railing at their state legislatures demanding that we get rid of these these systems. Or, this is, or at least this open is them up. 
Yeah, at least open them up so we can inspect them, right? I mean, this is, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, that would be nice. They don't even let people, in Florida, one of the rules is that after polls, like at the closing of the polls, people from the public can come in and watch you pull the, I guess they call them the rolls or the sheets or the whatever, they pull the numbers. Um, and they didn't let anybody do that. They didn't let anybody, because we had people from the press that wanted to go in, which is supposed to be open, mm-hmm. and, they didn't let them, and they didn't let them in. They just don't follow the rules, and there's no repercussions. Well, you've, got, you've, you've given me a new task now. I, I need to, uh, now that I live in the state of Missouri, I'm going to be asking about that in the state here, because uh, we have a super majority of Republicans in both the House and the Missouri Senate here, and I do know that... Uh, when I vote anyways, I do submit my ballot into a counting device. Um, now yeah. I'm going to take a second look at all this and see what this, yeah. uh, see well, as an engineer, you'd probably be very fascinated what you find out, but, and if you learn anything more to add, I'd love to know, but ESNS is definitely, um, the big one. I'll definitely make inquiries about that. So, uh, we're coming up to the end of our time here. I just want to know, um, what what's next in your future? Uh, will you will you take another run for a congressional seat, or maybe take a shot at Marco Rubio's seat in another two years? Um, what do you have in your plan? That's funny. I, somebody asked me that the the other day. I have no interest in um, running for a statewide office. Mm-hmm. I not not for senator, not for governor. That I have no interest in that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, really, we like I said, this was very strategic for this district at this time and what we're doing. This was never, I want to be this or I want to do that. We are currently keeping um, GenCore, which is my volunteer group. Uh, we are keeping going. We do everything from feeding South Florida to park cleanup, beach cleanup. Um, Pre-COVID, we did veterans nursing home events. So we're still doing our service and we're doing our thing. We're going to start tutoring. Um, shortly. And then I am starting a podcast called generational change. That is going to be my campaign manager and me doing similar to what you saw, like the dialogue that you saw in my live stream. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're going to have guests as well. Wonderful. And so that's what we're, we're about. I have a pretty big platform right now. I have, I want to say I have over 46, 47,000 Twitter followers. Okay. And so I think that this is a good opportunity to sort of try to transition that to um, people being, you know, subscribing to a podcast and just seeing what I can do with this platform and seeing how I can, you know, be mentoring these kids. So I got like mentoring the kids on one hand and then speaking truth to power out the other, kind of like both sides of it. But so that's what we're working on. So, So what was the name of the podcast again for our listeners? Generational Change. And it's Generational J-E-N. Ah, yeah. Generous. Generational change. And our organization and our volunteer group is called Gen Core. And it's pretty, we're actually now, all the kids are all voting on the logo. We're down to like the final, like I'm letting them all vote on how they want to do this and what they want to do. And, you know, we'll see where we are in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But this is how you're supposed to run for office, just so that people understand that. You're supposed to be serving the community, being a spokesperson for your community. And then representing them and being their voice, not I wake up one day and decide I want to be a congressperson. So I'm going to go get people. But that's we're changing the paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. And Gen Core, is it do you have a, a website for that as well that you'd like to? Well, that's post? also coming soon. That's also being worked on like right now. We're Like I said, we're just getting our logos set up and then they're okay. going to start putting up stuff. Um 
but that's what we're, you know, that's what they're, we're working on. Like I said, we had 19 kids on our last call, okay. which was amazing. And that's just local. Wow. That's just that's... our local volunteers, you know? So, so how can they're people, motivated. How can people find this uh, website? Is it going to be on, I know you, you still have your campaign well, website. Right now, after. right now we still have gen2020.com. Mm-hmm. And gen2020.com, we will um, be putting stuff up there to do links and stuff. And also people right now can follow, for sure, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at genfl23. And those are going to stay the same because I'm still Jen in Florida's 23rd district. So okay. um, the only thing, the website will change once we shut down the campaign stuff, which we can't do until October. There's okay. like a final reporting. Um, so we have to keep it going, but in the meantime, yeah, Gen FL 23 on social media, uh, we're going to keep that and you could follow all the stuff we're doing on there. Great. And you also do some work for, uh, a place called probation station. Um, yeah, we're starting that up now, now that I'm not running anymore. And I have a few, a few, uh, days a week on my hands. What that is, it's, it's my friend's company and she does, work in helping people transition from probation back into being, you know, part of the world again, and they're Mm -hmm. not a part of the system. And one of the services we are now offering since I can do this is we are going to be doing early terminations of probation, modifications of probation, and we're going to do it at a much lower price than any other lawyer would do it. Good. And, and some of the money is going to go back into probation station. Some of the money is going to go into a scholarship fund. Like we're just, we're just trying to give, I have a food distribution through her tomorrow, um, through that group. So just whatever we can do to serve. Okay. And that's probation station, all one word, probationstation.com. Probation station. Is it probationstation.com? That's, yeah, that that's... sounds right. It's probation station. And then her, her nonprofit, my friend's nonprofit that I'm also going to be doing work with is called prevention, not detention. Oh, okay. And, and a lot of that has to do with educating youth. And especially in communities where they are underfunded, underappreciated, under, you know, undervalued. Okay. And, and that's really where we're trying to serve. Okay. And the jump off point again is, is right now your campaign site is, is going to be up until the end of October, Gen 2020. That's J-E-N 2020.com. Gen 2020. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be up until somewhere in October, but by then we'll have information as to where to go next. Perfect. Uh, that's coming soon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, thank you for stopping by. We've been talking with Jen Perlman, who recently ran in the Democratic primary for the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Florida's 23rd Congressional District. Jen, I want to thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Keep it up, please. And, and thank you also for stopping in to chat with us this evening. No, I appreciate it. I'll always take an opportunity to talk about the platform. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might want to interview in the future, please drop us an email at podcast at thealliancepartycom The Alliance Party is all one word, podcast at thealliancepartycom All content for this podcast is copyright The Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of The Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of The Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of 
fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.